Welcome back to Distinct Nostalgia by MIM. Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home. It was 21 years ago this month that the hilarious Brit flick East is East appeared in cinemas across the UK and around the world. And today we're completing our celebrations of its birthday with another interview with one of the film's main characters. Ashley's been talking to Chris Bisson, who played Celine Khan. Chris, not spoke to you in ages, so it's lovely to talk to you. And uh, on this occasion of uh, Easter's East's uh, uh, 21st uh, birthday, or 21st anniversary of Easter's East coming out as a film in 1999. Now, we of course know it started off as a as a theatre production, and you were involved in that. Tell us about how it all began for you. Take us through East is East, the Chris Bisson story, as it were, right from the beginning. I, as a northern actor, got on the train, went down to London, found myself heading towards Sloan Square uh, and did an audition for the stage play. And and that's where it all started. And then it came together as um, I had to move to London for the first time. And that was, I suppose that was quite a big move for, you know, your first gig. I decided not to go back to do my third year at uni because... The job started in the August or September, so that completely ruled out the third year. So there was a bit of a risk there as well that I didn't wasn't going to complete my education, but I just had to do it. The script was fantastic, and then we ended up rehearsing in a little church hall in uh, Pimlico, and that is where the story came together. Really, you know, we had a script; it was a working script that the royal court had brought on. Ayub Khan Din was a new writer at that stage. And we were quite free to to make changes, to develop the characters. And a lot of the comedy, a lot of the humour you see, all came from those rehearsals in that church hall in Pimlico. It, it, it fundamentally changed the piece or brought it to life, added texture to the characters. Um, for instance, the character of Mina, the daughter, she wasn't quite so tomboyish and she wasn't quite as funny <laughs> in the original script. Hope I hope doesn't <laughs> appreciate that. But there was a wonderful actress that called Zeta Satar who, who really made it her own. And did you know any of the people that you were going to be working with, any of the young actors or anything like that? No, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know any of the actors. I turned up on day one. So Linda Bassett was playing my mum. Leslie Nickel was in the original stage play as well. It was Jimmy Mystery, who I met at Hackney Downs train station because we were both finding our way from Hackney over to the rehearsal space. But Emil Marwa I'd never met before. And we had a young actor called Imran Ali who played Sajid back in the day then. Um, of course, he was replaced by Jordan Routledge for the film. Um, the film is a whole new... It's a whole different beast. You know, they're, they're after different things. There's a whole new set of people in. But the the stage play was, was where it all started. I mean, there's two stories in East and East in a way, isn't there? There's the story of the mum and dad, and then there's the kids' story that rumbles on alongside it, you know, the stuff that the kids are up to. How was it trying to create that chemistry? Because you had to... Um, convey a real chemistry between those kids, didn't you? Tell us a bit about that. It was a really well cast piece, the original stage play, and it was it was a really nice group of actors. And the piece on stage, if anyone's ever seen it, it's a different piece to the film. It's much more an ensemble piece. It, it's much more balanced. We don't follow the the narrative of the love story in the same way that we follow in the film. Uh, where you're following less characters, more focused on less characters. It's set in the chip shop and in the front room of the house. And they're the only two sets you do. And anything that happens externally, of course, in the play, you just hear about what happened at the Whitweek Walks. You never actually see it. So it's a very different piece. Um, But, uh, yeah, the characters, uh, the actors just came together. And it, it was a real moment in time. And I think when we got to that first performance... We opened at Birmingham Rep Theatre and obviously everyone's incredibly nervous. But we just started getting big laughs and big reactions in places that we hadn't necessarily explored or we didn't think it was quite as funny as it was. And I think that's one of the things that happened really when it became billed as a comedy. I don't think we... It's quite a tragic story, East is East. You know, it, it, it really isn't... Uh, at its heart it isn't a funny story but of course humans we laugh at things and that's how we get by in life 
I mean, that is how everybody gets by. You've got to laugh sometimes at the tragedy and the and the struggles that you go through in life. And I think that is what really captured the imagination of the audience. And obviously, great characters that I have but written. Real kind of strong individuals, all doing very different things, and a great mum and a great dad. And of, of course, we were the young actors then. But, you know, having Linda Bassett playing your mum, and having Leslie Nichol was the Aunt Annie, and we had Nadim Sawala playing the dad originally uh, for the first stage play. So, you know, I was really blessed to be with a great group of kind of senior actors who could kind of nurture and guide. And really, you know, it, I'd done plays before, but it was with Manchester Youth Theatre or they, we were doing stuff at university. They weren't, you know, it wasn't at the Royal Court. You know, that is, that can be quite overwhelming as well. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, I'm in the West End. The thing about it was, of course, that, you know, location was really important. You know, it was set in the north of England, you know, Salford and, and then in the Pennines. You know, this was an area that you knew because you had grown up in the north of England. And uh, do you think it helped for you to have that knowledge when you were embarking on the part that you were embarking on? And to be, you know, somebody from your background growing up in the north of England. I think definitely being a northerner, you know, certainly the humour is something that, that you get straight away. You you understand, you know, the feel of those Salford streets, those those tight city Manchester kind of um, terraced houses, you know, the the way that the city feels, the way that the city works, the way that the people talk to each other. Um, and I think, obviously, if you have an understanding of that, it becomes much easier to to be able to translate that. And also, it's it's nice to be able to... You can pick out the humour in it as well. So I think it did work. And I think they were, they were glad to have a northerner there. And obviously, the rest of the cast were copying my accent, even though I was having to go slightly more Salford than I would normally speak, you know. But it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was just a great experience. Yeah, and they were, they, all the other actors would be saying, "Can you just read this line for us, Chris? Can you just read this line for us, Chris?" <laughs> I just need to get this accent down. But of course, Leslie knew it, didn't she? Because she, you know, she grew up in that area, and you know, she's a Northern lass. Yeah, I'm thinking of the the lads really. When Jimmy Mystery had spent a bit of time in Manchester, Emil Marwa was a Cockney. Imran Ali was at Cockney as well. Paul Baisley, he was a Southerner. Uh, so, yeah, there were quite a few Southerners to, 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 to coach through. Oh, Zita Satow, she was a Brummie who played the sister, yeah. So you were the one keeping the tab on the Northerners. Yeah, it doesn't sound Making like that. authentic. Absolutely. <laughs> we, we had to tour it back to Salford as well, you know, so we, um, the accents had to be good. Yeah, exactly. And talking about Leslie, you know, she actually comes from that area just up the road, isn't she? Just up the road from Salford itself. Uh, when I spoke to Leslie, um, she was saying that um, her character that she played in East East, Aunt Annie, uh, was, was based on <laughs> loads and loads of women that she'd grown up with, really, in that patch. Uh, you know, strong Salford, Salford women. She drew on all of them, didn't she? Well, Leslie really brought that character to life. And you could just tell that she'd soaked up all these years of all these kind of gritty northern women and then just kind of assembled all the best bits into Auntie Annie that could tell these fantastic stories. She could be over the top. She could be brutal. She could be cutting. She could really be whatever she wanted to do. And she could do it with kind of a smile on her face and uh, like a, a cheekiness about it. And it was just always funny. And I think that's what really resonated with that character because she's the sounding board for the mum. That's the role that she plays. And um, she just did it so wonderfully. She's very, very, very funny. I think there's more of everybody in the stage play because it's just the family. There are no external characters. So you've got the brothers and sister, the mum, the dad, the auntie Annie. And I think the only external characters are the doctor who performs the circumcision and he also doubles as Mr. Shah. Uh, so Mr. Shah comes round, but he brings pictures of his daughters that he's trying to trying to get the brothers to marry. So we we only ever see them in, in photograph form on stage, which is funny because the, the photographs get p- passed around and, you know, it, it lends itself to, to both genres. So in the theatre production, you don't get John Barden's character, you know, the, the, the old man on the other side of the street. And all the little ginger-haired boy, you don't get him either, do you? No. So we hear about these characters. The, the, the difference with the film is that we see all of the characters that we talk about on stage. And that is the that's the fantastic thing about film. We can go and we can shoot it and we can see all of these people. And on stage, it's different because you're in a much closer, tighter environment and you're inside the family home and you're understanding 
all of these external elements just purely from inside the family. You're living inside that family bubble with them. And it intensifies certain things. It it it, it makes things more personal because you, you know how they're being affected. You don't necessarily see the moment at which it happens, but you, you get the, the way that, that that experience resonates with that character. Obviously, you, you feel the full force of that on the stage. We're talking a moment about specifically about how the um, stage performance, uh, you know, transferred into the film. But let's talk for a little bit about the, the subject matter. Obviously, you've got domestic abuse in there, which, of course, was the, the main serious element of uh, the drama. But you'd also got, probably for the first time in a way, um, a depiction of Asian communities in Britain in a mainstream film. And it was the first sort of film of its kind, certainly that I can remember, certainly during, you know, obviously there'd been films that depicted um, Asian people in different ways with regards to Britain and its empire, you know, Passage to India, Dueling the Crown, all these uh, kind of things. But this is the first time I can remember anything being done around uh, race relations really uh, on this kind of scale within this country. So in a way, um, it was rather groundbreaking, wasn't it? It it tackled the issues head on. And and what was, I suppose, remarkable about it was that East is East is set in the late 60s, early 70s. We were doing this around just before 2000. 97, 98 was the stage play. 99 was the film. And yet, even though these stories were 30 years old, we still hadn't addressed them in on the contemporary stage or in film and in television. And I think that was maybe what was groundbreaking about it. There was nothing new when we made that film about a white woman and an Asian man having a family together. You know, it was a very, very old story. It's just that no one had told it that well. Or, you know, maybe it was the, it was the first of a kind. I think what was so important about it was, though, that most people say it captures a moment in time. And also it's very relatable for a lot of people. The majority of people that I speak to about it, they say, oh, such a body was like that. My dad was like that. Or my mum was like that. Or I had an auntie like her. Or, you know, my brothers and sisters. And I think that that's what's special about it, is that everybody can pick something out of those characters and those situations and relate them to themselves. And it makes them feel like they're not alone, for a start. Or it makes them feel like... the it's okay to feel the way I do because there are conversations in houses up and down the country about the same problems that I'm facing. You know, maybe my dad's a bit a bit stuck in the past or in a, he has an ideological way of what he thinks life should be like for me. And I was born in Salford. I, you know, I'm a... Well, I was going to say I'm Mancunian then, but I think the Salfordians will be happy about that. But... You know, I have a very different way of life. I've been to a British school. I've, I've lived a British life. And this is how I feel. And the two just don't really sit that comfortably together. And I think, you know, a lot of people have had to, to deal with that challenge and, and navigate a, a course through that with their families. We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your, in your little, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, we all, we all artists over here, man. I'm trying, already? Yeah, oh, I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying, oh, yeah. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. yeah. Damn, me, me. Yo, look, 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 we all artists, man. We go, you feel me? We going to have this, like. Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right now. With this I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for real. For oh, I gotta don't play with it. Take that shit seriously. Yeah, I mean that's what I think is really, really interesting. Actually, um, you know, apart from the the main storyline of the domestic abuse and the race, the race relations and all that kind of thing, you got the younger characters who were in a way sort of um, caught between you know, uh, different cultures and generations and things. Obviously, the whole, um, your character in particular was um, 
fairly liberal, very liberal actually, the, the kinds of things that he was doing at art school and all that kind of thing. And and so and you, obviously it'd been the 60s, now we're in the 70s, things were a little bit more liberated, a lot more liberated sexually kind of thing. And so there was a clash of the of the, of the old culture and the new culture, wasn't there? So you got all that contrast, and that's what made it such a great melting pot of comedy, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it, it definitely was. I think Ayub just managed to pick the best moments to highlight those differences. And, of course, he'd grown up with this clash of cultures in his household, and his brothers and sisters had all had various different kind of battles to... To take up in some ways with with the with the older generation, things were changing rapidly. They they had a different way of thinking from the older generation. It was the you know the the late sixties, early seventies. Things were kind of a bit more free and easy. And I think for for my character that was interesting as well because that wasn't anything to do with race or religion or creed or color. It was as simple as an art student who thinks he's all free and easy creating a model of a vagina and showing it to his mum and thinking that that's going to be okay <laughs> I mean, you know that's a, that's universal and i think it, those those moments are just absolutely funny i mean some people really didn't like it and they hated it but most people you know when that moment comes at the end of the stage play or at the end of the film it is a, a belly laugh and it's, a, you know, a horrified look on the face, which then turns into hysterical laughter. I remember doing that scene time after time on stage and it never stopped. It never it never failed to bring the house down every single night in every single theatre up and down the country. And then, you know, we came to film it for, for the film and it was we had a different type of model. And it was quite, <laughs> it was quite complicated to be honest with you, because we I had to have a, a tussle with Linda Bassett, and then, she had to just release me as I went through the door to the living room, and then the director Damien O'Donnell said, "So I just want you to twist in the air, and then you need to land the model on the mum's lap, on Mrs. Shaw's lap, on the far side." I was like, "Right, okay." So I tried to get my head round it. We had a few rehearsals. And we tried it, but of course I was going into the room backwards, so I couldn't see where she was. And so the first few takes, I mean, we did quite a lot of takes on it, but I just, it was impossible to go in backwards, flip through the air and then release it at the right moment to land it completely on her lap. So it looked like it was her vagina. And that proved very difficult. And the cast and crew were, we were getting a bit frustrated. We knew, we just knew it would work. But the first time it did work and it landed, everyone burst out laughing because it was so funny. And I burst out laughing as well. And I couldn't carry on with the scene. And I remember David O'Donnell, the director, just going, ah, why are you all laughing? It's, we've got it. We, we had it. And we we're like, we could do it again. We've done it once. We could do it again now. And we could do it without laughing. But if it made us laugh at, the, at that time, then you kind of got the sense that it's going to make other people laugh too. It's been on our tellies for six decades and we're big fans here at Distinct Nostalgia. And we're so passionate about our love for Corrie that we've put together some real treats for our listeners as we delve into the show's history this December. And we're supposed to be both at university and uh, he was trying to sort of break out of this little backstreet world to better himself, really. It wasn't usual for people from some street like Coronation Street to go to university. He, he changed the mode. And of course, people were in those times. They were beginning to go to university. We're right back to the very first episode with Ken Barlow's very first girlfriend and Alan Rothwell, who played Ken's brother, David Barlow. Coronation Street went out live to start with. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, of course. Well, that was terrifying. Yes, yeah. You had to do a half an hour of television. Yes, and get it right. And get it right, yeah. 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 Staying in the 60s, and Kenneth Cope tells us how wooing Violet Carson, Ina Sharples, landed him a role in the show as Minnie Caldwell's lodger, Sonny Jim. She got me under the viaduct and started shouting at me, pointing a finger, pointing a finger and saying, get out, go away from here. People like you, 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 you don't deserve to be here. Get out and never come back, never come out. Go away, go away, go away. And our heads got closer and closer and closer. 
closer. So the bay, there's a slight pause, and I said, give us a kiss. And it just brought the house down, everybody. The whole crew just laughed their heads off. From our own archives, we bring you never-before-broadcast anecdotes from Jean Alexander and Betty Driver. It was Ina Sharples, Margot Bryant uh, that played Minnie Caldwell, me, Julie Goodyear, Jean Alexander that played Hilda Ogden, and we all used to be together and do scenes just of conversation, which I miss now. We should do more of that. Meanwhile, Amanda Barry and Chris Bisson remember their time on Coronation Street. I went in initially into the shop, Jim's Cafe, as it was then. I was invited in there to sack Pat Phoenix. Oh. <sighs> you know, I, mean, I was actually leading Lady in the West End, doing me better, but actually going there to do... Now, you talk about nerves. She was the leading lady of Coronation oh, Street, wasn't she? But it wasn't that. It was that it was unreal. It was surreal. Everybody says it, and it's true. You're completely surreal to go into there and go... You couldn't concentrate. You were going, concentrate a man that is not Elsie... It, it, is Elsie Tanner? Is Elsie Tanner? I'm talking to Elsie Tanner. I don't know what I'm going to say next. I'm just step. This is what you do. It was like being, being very in the middle of a dream, and you're going concentrate, Amanda. You are still supposedly an actress. Get on with it, yeah. We'll also have interviews with Julie Hesmond, and Bruce Jones, and many more. And we've a very special dose of Distinct Nostalgia's Mind of the Month quiz, too, as we put Corrie's superfans to the test on their knowledge of those six decades, with some rather special guests asking some of the questions. Hello, I'm Thelma Barlow. Hello, I'm Stephen Arnold. I'm Philip Lowry. My name's Nick Cochran. Hi, I'm Martin Hancock. Hello, everybody. My name's Madge Hindle. Make sure you join us for all the fun. And don't forget to trawl our archives for loads of other Corrie interviews. Thelma Barlow, Steve Arnold, Nick Cochran, Chris Quinton, Chloe Newsom, Philip Lowry, Sherry Hewson, Madge Hindle, Martin Hancock, Tupeli Dorgu, stars from every decade of the world's longest-running drama serial. Celebrating Corrie at 60, this December, from Distinct Nostalgia. My mum, who sadly died last year, East is East was always her favourite film. And her favourite moment in that film was your starring moment. She absolutely adored that. She loved that. She could never stopped laughing at that. She thought it was wonderful. Now, of course, your moment was uh, was brilliant. and But there were other comedy, many, many other comedy moments, but probably the, the most memorable, in addition to uh, your big moment, was, of course, the little boy and his tickle tackle. Tell us a little bit about that story and how important that was and how, how that played out. The tickle tackle story... Uh, remained from the stage play and translated perfectly into the film and it is uh it is a very funny story and of course we see east is east is a film that you see through sajid's eyes you see everything from the perspective of the little kid so whether it be anything that his brothers are doing or the domestic violence or the 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 parker and you get the shots with the parker and the fur going round the edge of the camera you know we are in his world and and this is the journey that the audience go on is is the view from the youngest member of that family so everything that's happening around him is kind of a, is a bit strange to him he doesn't really know that he's, when his brother's going out clubbing what he's really doing. And when his dad's talking about tickle tackle or they're trying to keep it secret from him, you know, he's got he's got a sense of it, but he probably, the, the actual gravity of it, but it's, it's quite brutal. Because then, you know, the brothers pick it off and he says he's chopping it off, Sajid. You know? <laughs> and then Mina's r- ripping the piece of paper to show what's going to happen to it. <laughs> and I've got to, to obviously, to, to draw the penis for them to then rip the foreskin off it. it you know, it was, there was lots of very funny moments in it. And yet yeah, the, the Sajid story is, well, it's his story. You know, we we say that there's great performances from all of from all the cast, and the great Empire kind of heads that up with Linda Bassett. But it, the but the story in essence is all about what Sajid sees and how and what how we see it through his eyes, and that's that's you know that's the big story for him is is the circumcision. And and just looking at and thinking about the aesthetic side of the the, the film, you know, I was born 1972, and I remember quite a lot of the things you know the the, the whole thing of uh, wearing a uh, a parker coat i had a parker coat um there was the thing of um you know the kids uh, 
going around on those orange um, things that jump up and down. I've forgotten the name of them. Yeah. Space hoppers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all that was so well done, wasn't it? I mean, East is East is a period piece. You know, we are looking back 30 years. And when we came to film it, obviously everything needed to look the way it was. The parkers, the dress, the, the props, as you mentioned, the, the space hoppers that, <laughs> that kids used to play on. But also the look and feel of the, the street that we filmed on. And I remember we turned up and we were filming in Openshaw, I think, was, was the location of the street that locations had picked. And they'd been down that street. They've obviously done a deal with all the with all the residents and they've had to go down and take all the satellite dishes down. They've they've painted things up to make them look a bit more industrial. They've darkened, you know, because of the pollution, they've darkened some of the paintwork. And they've done all sorts of incredible things to transport you back in time to, to give you an authentic feel of what it was like at that time. And they, they just did a phenomenal job. But there is an interesting story, actually, because there were two things that happened on the very first day of filming that, of shooting that movie. And there were two things that would stick with me for the rest of my career, really. First up, we were filming everything that happens outside the family home. That was the first week of filming. Every shot that you see in that film that's outside on the street, outside the family home, whether it be the the big Rolls Royce driving through with the dog, um, whether it's the end sequence where the family are all piling out and there's a bit of a chase in the street. But the very first scene we were going to film was the scene where we are about to leave to go to um, to go to Bradford, and we're all piling into the minibus. And we turn up and I was there because we went to the house that was going to be our house and we were all there. And then Linda Bassett had um, had a black eye on because in that scene, she's already been hit by the dad and she's got a black eye. They knocked on the door and the lady who opened the door had a matching black eye to what Linda Bassett had. And it, it, it suddenly, the gravity of the situation and just what it meant in terms of domestic violence and how real that was, I think genuinely affected the way that all of the actors played those scenes. And it reinforced for everybody how tragic this story is. You know, it has its good moments and it has its bad moments. And, you know, this was one of those bad moments. And the kind of, the when that reality hits you clean in the face on your first day of filming, you know, it... it it probably, you know, it, it helped to make the film that it was because we didn't ever perceive East is East as an out-and-out comedy. Uh, that's just how it was marketed. You know, that wasn't... The majority of the scenes that we play, we're trying to play honestly and truthfully. And, you know, when somebody or your mum has got a black eye, that, that's a really difficult, tragic scene to play. And you you, you are a million miles away from the billboards that have a great day in trying to mount someone on them. You know, that's all marketing, that's all spin. The reality of what we actually do when we're on set to create that story for you is something completely different. Um, and that was the first remarkable thing that happened. And then the second one was that when we were shooting the scene, we were in the back of the van and on Paris was in and out of the door and you could see him scratching his head and he couldn't, Something wasn't right and he wasn't happy and he wasn't ready to shoot the scene. And everyone else was getting a bit twitchy and not really understanding why. All he had to do was walk out, close the door and get in the van. That was it. That was the shot. So everyone was getting a bit... The director was getting a bit tetchy. We were like, right, come on, we need to shoot this on. We need to shoot this. And then he went, ah, now I remember. Linda, who obviously plays the mum. Have you got the key to the door? Because it affects the way that I close the door if I know that you have the key and you're already in the van. And I suddenly, as a young actor, went, oh, my days. That's the level of detail he works in. You know, he won't close the door unless he knows that somebody else has got the key because it affects the way he closed the door. And I was like, oh, Bissons, you, you really need to up your game here, sunshine. <laughs> you're dealing with the, you're playing with the big boys here. You know, they think of everything. Every moment, every detail is crafted to, to create what you see. And, of course, he was a massive actor, wasn't he? I mean, you know, um, huge in 
in, in India and Bollywood and all that kind of thing. And and I gather also mobbed at certain times when you were when you were producing East is East. <laughs> Om Puri is and was is a legend. I mean, I didn't realise quite how big Om Puri was before we started shooting East is East. I was a young, kind of cocky upstart from Manchester, turning up down at Ealing Studios was the first place that I ever met him. And I just didn't get it. I mean, I didn't watch any of the Bollywood movies, so, you know, my upbringing was very kind of traditional Mancunian, really. I mean, I'm from a mixed-race family, but my dad is uh, from Trinidad. So even though he's of Indian descent, so I'm ethnically Indian, culturally West Indian is really kind of the way my family breaks down on my dad's side. And um, so, so I didn't watch Bollywood movies. It just wasn't something that, that he had or he ever showed me. So we went to, um, we got through the first rehearsal and Om was there and I wanted to get out and get some fresh air. So we were going out of the studios and I said to Om, Do you, are you coming for a walk? We're just going to go for a walk around the back. So we did. And we were just having a bit of chit chat. Um, there was, I think, it was, I think Jimmy Mystery might have been with us, and Emil Marwa was with us, and I just said so, you know, catching up with him, asking him questions that probably, you know, naively these days I probably would have researched him and found out a bit more about him rather than asking him questions that you probably should know about somebody of his stature, and um, he was just like, oh, this is so wonderful, and I said, what's wonderful, Om? He says, just walking through here. I was like, what's he on about? just walking through here. And it didn't dawn on me that what he meant was we were in a place where no one was recognising him and he was free to go for a walk at lunchtime and we could go through these gardens together and no one was bothering him and no one was mithering him. And that story really played out when we (laughs) were filming some scenes where we were supposed to be in Bradford. We're in a very Asian part of London. And we're on a side road and there's a big kind of main road which is running past um, a lot of Indian shops all along there. (laughs) We're parked up and it's one of the few continuity errors in the film actually. For those of you who have a hawk eye, you'll notice that the van goes over a speed bump and there were no speed bumps in those days. So you can go back and when you watch the film again, you go, oh yeah, yeah, I didn't spot that one. But when we were parked up, waiting to go for a take. Obviously, we attract a little bit of attention because you've got camera people around and you've got a lot of people doing different things. There's some 1970s billboard advertising that's been put up that's replaced whatever was there for uh, on, the, on the advertising boarding and stuff. And then somebody spotted on Paris and you heard it like it was it wasn't chinese whispers it was it was the opposite of that it was chinese shouts <laughs> or indian shouts and somebody went on paris and somebody else turned around and went on paris and then it went doom on paris on paris on paris on paris down the road onto the main road to the point at which then people started stopping their cars in the middle of the dual carriageway and just got out of the cars. And it just became this huge mob of people going, on Paris, on Paris, where is he? <laughs> of course, we've got about two security guards because we're a low-budget film and we're shooting out in London. And it just caused chaos. And at that moment, I realised what he'd meant by this feels so nice to be able to just go for a walk. <laughs> in terms of the film going from... Um, stage to screen. Um, I mean, I talked to the History Boys about uh, their film and how it went from, you know, stage to to screen. And apparently there was a load of hoo-ha over who was going to be in the film. And I think the film companies were keen on on bringing on board people who were well-known. And uh, because Alan Bennett and uh, Nicholas Heitner uh, held out, um, you know, for the for the original cast. I think all of the original cast, more or less, got in the into the into the film. But I think it was a a, a battle. Um, did you have a similar kind of um, thing with with East is East in terms of trying to get you know the original cast all in the film? That's the same on every movie ever made, um, and it was no different for East is East. It was a really odd time. I don't really know how to describe it apart from 
We knew that we had been incredibly successful doing the play. We toured, we'd done the full tour, we ended up at the Royal Court Theatre, right in the centre of London, kind of naming lights kind of thing. And it was our moment. And then we got we got transferred back to to Stratford East uh, Theatre for quite a long run, and then we came back to the West End for a for a longer run. We were sold out every single night, and there was talk about the film from from day from day one, pretty much when we opened at Birmingham Rep. But obviously, with as the play had gathered pace and it gathered momentum, and the audiences were getting bigger and bigger, um, that that talk had intensified, and then we the play stopped which was a strange thing in itself because for an actor who then didn't have a job all those offers to come to my restaurant tonight and come to my club tomorrow night <laughs> you know all of that just dries up and nobody really cares who you are anymore it doesn't matter and that that's quite hard to take in some ways when you when you've gone from like quite big success to to zero and then we heard that the they're trying to recast the film completely and that I get a message via my agent and of course me and uh, the rest of the lads in the cast we're all good friends and we all get the same message they are not using any of the original cast the only givens are that Linda Bassett will play the mum there's a strong possibility Leslie Nickel will play the Auntie Annie but the only guarantee in the film deal is that Linda plays the mum and that was it. So they started the casting process, but refused to see any of the original cast. I mean, it was it was incredibly strange because they didn't even bring us in to to audition the same way that everybody else had auditioned. You know, they didn't just see us as part of a batch. They said, no, the original people, are, they're contaminated. They've got preconceptions about how the piece is. We don't even want to see them. And that was quite hard to take. And of course, we were all chatting about it and... It, it, you know, I was talking to Jimmy Mystery and Emil Marwa and uh, Zita Satar, who played the original Mina. And I think, it, you know, it was quite a depressing time, really, to think that something that you had crafted, you had put your heart and soul into making this piece work. And it was your performances and drive that had that had made people want to come and see this piece and had made the film producers want to put money in it to turn it into a film, but they're not going to see you. And that is really, really hard to take. As it happens, they couldn't cast it any better because the Royal Court have a very good casting department. That's why they're such a a very established theatre that's been around for a very long time. They know everyone. They've seen all the actors. They've put together the best set of actors that they could possibly put together to do this play so in some ways it was just stupid not to see the original cast but it 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 got worse than that for for the production because they couldn't cast it until they had cast Sajid and that was the biggest bit they had Ampere and they had Linda Bassett they had Leslie Nickel until they had identified what the youngest child would look like just purely based on looks, they couldn't cast the movie. And um, it was interesting because I think there was there was an appeal on This Morning and Jordan Routledge's auntie was watching This Morning and she went, oh, our Jordan could do that. So she phoned up, Jordan went to meet them and Jordan got the part. And it was only at that point that they realised that, all right, they found the perfect Sajid, but they still are not happy with the rest of the cast. And they eventually, I suppose reluctantly, said, OK, we're going to have to see the original cast. And they they brought us all in. We all auditioned for the parts that we knew inside out because we've been doing them for over a year on tour. And um, I got the part. Jimmy Mystery got the part. Emil Marwa got the part. Um, Ian Aspinall got the elder brother and Roger James got Paul Baisley's part, so we, it wasn't a it wasn't a clean sweep. Not everybody got the parts that they had done on in the stage play, but three of us certainly did. And it it was heartbreaking because Zita Satar, who played Mina, 
she didn't get the part. Um, they gave it to Archie Punjabi. So then you've got all these kinds of loyalty issues as well. And you're going, I feel really bad, but we have to get on and make the movie. So it, they didn't make it easy for us in that sense. You know, and it's really sad to think that you're pushing on with a project, but you, you've dropped a few people along the way because they want a different feel or a different vibe or they want someone with a different look because it's now going to be on film. But that's the way the business is, unfortunately. It's it's cruel and it's harsh and, you know, they make those calls. And how was the transition to the film for you? I mean, how much filming and TV and film had you done up to that point? Well, I was a child actor, so I'd started at ITV on Children's Ward um, and that was my first ever... Well, it was my, it was my break, I suppose. Um, it was also my first ever acting experience, apart from being at school. So I learnt on the job, basically. I you say, yeah, mister, how does that work? Why do you do that? Why are you pointing that light over there? What does that camera do? Which actually is probably the best way to learn, because when you're 13 and you're on set and you're asking people how things work and what they do and why they do it, they don't mind telling you. When you're 30-odd, and you're asking people the same questions, you know, you feel like a bit of a div, really. <laughs> you feel like you probably should know this already, or you're too embarrassed to ask because you feel like you should already know it. So learning as a child actor, it, it does have some, you know, some real advantages to, to being on the set and just soaking it all up and also not worrying about it. You know, those adult things that you do where you obsess about things and you worry about things. When you're 13, you walk on and you get on with it. And if someone tells you to change it, you go, all right, I'll change it. You don't consider why they asked you to change it or were you doing it wrong in the first place or was it terrible the first time? You just do it and it's like water off a duck's back and you move on. And, you know, in some ways, that's the way you have to be in this industry because, you know, things chop and change all the time and, you know, uh, you can't really be thin-skinned. But, yeah, you know, I learned and I'd been on Children's Ward. I'd stopped acting a couple of times. I'd restarted acting when I was at university. I'd, I'd been doing some stuff with the BBC. I'd, I'd done various bits and bobs. Obviously, I'd worked on Prime Suspect as well immediately the summer before I'd done the stage play of East is East. Um, so that was a great experience working with Helen Mirren. And uh, there was a you know, it was a nice point of that was, well, I say a nice point, but I had a, I got shot in that. So I used to have to go into makeup incredibly early in the morning for for about a week to have this gunshot wound put through the the front of my head. Um, so I spent quite a lot of time in makeup with Helen Mirren around that time. So you kind of, I think you just pick up bits of experience and as as you go on, and you know you see the way that people do things, and and I think that's why it's incredibly hard sometimes to break in to an industry because just hanging around it and being on set is the way that you learn. Whatever you think you learn at university about the way things are, you know, it's just never the same. <laughs> it's not it's not quite the same. It's so much more nuanced when you when you're in a professional environment and you're making drama. Things are very different. Directors are very different. DOPs are very different. Everyone, you know, there's constantly changing people and you just have to be adaptable. There is no one size fits all in the industry. You have to learn to work with lots of people in lots of different ways. And, and you know, that's that's a skill in itself, to be honest with you. I've had mental health problems, I think, for most of my life. Suicide is sadly something which affects people from all backgrounds. My friends didn't quite understand why I was being the way I was being. So support was was pretty much non-existent. A brand new podcast brought to you by the Zero Suicide Alliance. I'm Professor Alice Roberts and this is Life Matters. Few people understand that you just actually just need to just sit and listen to what the person's saying. We do know that there are some people who tend to be more at risk than others. In our feature on the latest initiatives from around the world, we find out how three schoolgirls from Brazil have developed a suicide prevention app aimed at Generation Z. If something bad happened to me today, I'll go there and add a drop of water. We're with the team at Hollyoaks to hear how they've been showing how soap can inspire life-saving conversations among men at risk of suicide. I just feel absolutely nothing at all. Nothing, just dead. This way you get to see Darren's journey behind the scenes. He's really struggling and he doesn't know how to reach out. He doesn't know how to get help. You know, it's always been this taboo subject. Join me, Professor Alice Roberts, for the very first edition 
of Life Matters. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts and visit zerosuicidealliance.com for a free online awareness course that could help you save lives. Hello and welcome to The Likely Dads, a new series that looks at parenting from the paternal perspective. I'm always wary of people who plan kids. If your life's that structured, just stay away from me. We're not going to get on. <laughs> a brand new show from the team behind Distinct Nostalgia. I'm Tim Vincent and each week I'll be joined by my fellow Likely Dads, Mick Ferry and Russell Kane, as well as a series of special guests to discuss different aspects of fatherhood. When a man has an urge to have a, a child, it's not spoken about much. Women sort of own this area. <laughs> We're sort of open it was going to be like the old films I watched where I'd just have a pipe and I'd be in a study. You're just going, you're going to see your father now for ten minutes. <laughs> Hello, children, what have you been up to today? I'm not interested. All right, off to bed. <laughs> An MIM production for BBC Radio 4. We hope you'll join us and subscribe to The Likely Dads on BBC Sounds. Yeah, you have to keep reinventing yourself, don't you? I mean, I was talking to Sherry Houston and she was saying that she always says to young actors, basically, you just need to literally reinvent yourself and keep reinventing yourself, really. The thing is, you know, in, in the job that I do, you never stop learning because now I play a different type of part and every year and every moment that goes by changes the way that casting directors see me or the way I look or my life experiences or whether you know whether I'm I'm playing a dad now or maybe even a granddad you know these things are all changing all the time and you know I'm observing people I'm observing the way that films are made and the styles that they go for the choices that they make but the majority of what I do is is learnt from from personal experience, and it's learnt by by watching by people watching a lot of it. To be honest with you, you know, every time you see an interesting character, you think I'm going to remember the way he did that. You you draw on whatever you can to to create the character. It's not all about the creating of the character. It's also about the understanding of the situation that you're trying to create, um, and the dynamics and how that feels in that moment when uh, you know the racist guy across the street is shouting directly at you you know how does that feel what's that moment like I had a lot of friends that were art students so um i'd seen that what they thought of themselves they all regard themselves very highly all these art students you know <laughs> um so yeah so there was a bit of that in it um the clash of cultures i'd you know i'd seen that happen in and around my own family so there was there was nothing new there and you know, so for me you know even though east is east is breaking new ground it's all new this was this was stuff that was old to me. I'd been living with this my whole life. So, yeah, there was there was plenty that I could bring to it, um, I thought. And, you know, that, that translates onto the, onto the stage or onto the screen. I keep thinking about the mix of things that uh, East is East covered. And one question I want to ask is, do you think as a film, maybe a stage play would be different? Because I think, um, I suppose, in, in a way, it's easier in, in some ways to tackle things on the stage um, it's not as not as public as a film, obviously, in in that sense. But you know, do you think as a film, um, it could be made today? You know, do do you think it would actually fly? Because we seem to be in an age where there's a lot of restrictions on comedy now, and, and you know, it's it's quite difficult, isn't it, to to include everything in this. The great thing about East is East is that it's very honest, isn't it? You know, and can we be as honest now? You know, you know, would that honesty uh, fly today it's a very honest film um and that is what's so captivating about it um and yeah uh, you know if we were making it today um with the the movements that we have black lives matter all of these things about what you're allowed to say what you're allowed to poke fun at then you know maybe a lot of those gags would have been cut or a lot of those lines would have been cut and i personally don't it's a really hard balance to find because the truth of a story is the truth of a story and what people say may be offensive but if you're writing or portraying a character who is offensive and is intentionally offensive then you need to be given the freedom to represent those characters on a screen or on a stage what otherwise what do you end up with you end up with an industry that's not tackling head-on the 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 issues of the time, um, and you know, doing it with through comedy is sometimes so much more powerful 
Because people laugh at the situation and think that was hilarious. And then they go back and they think about it afterwards and they think, do you know what? I laughed at that because I was uncomfortable. You know, they really put me in a space where that was uncomfortable. And, you know, <laughs> funny thing, I was watching Black Klansman, the Spike Lee movie. And um, this was only the other week. And there was a, there was a, there was a sequence in it that I burst out laughing and found it hilarious. And my missus was looking at me thinking, are, we, are you really supposed to be laughing at this? And I was like, yes, it's a black comedy. You can't take it seriously. You know, Spike Lee has done this to make you laugh and in order to make you think about it afterwards. So it's absolutely fine. You know, we, we should be able to, we should be free to represent. And, it, you know, um, East is East was no different. East is East was really, really difficult. We opened it in various, we played it in, on stage in various communities. Some responded to it better than others. And that's within factions of the Asian community as well. Um, we opened the film in various different locations. It was, you know, when I was in Scandinavia opening the film in Helsinki, they were saying, I can't believe you've made this film. It's incredible because... It's showing what life is like for us now. So it was a contemporary issue for for the Scandinavians or you know the ones that I met, whereas it was a thirty year old year old issue for for the film itself. When I opened it in Morocco in Marrakesh, it's a Muslim country. You know, it it wasn't it was never going to go down as well generally in, in that environment. I remember I opened it and a girl, a girl stood up. They watched the film and I was doing the on-stage Q&A and this, uh, this girl stood up after the after this film was screened and she lambasted me in French from, from within the auditorium. But I, my French isn't good enough to know what she was saying. <laughs> and then the translator just turned to me and went, so did you have a good time making the film? <laughs> I was like... That is not what she just said. Uh, uh, clearly, she has been offended by some of the content. And, you know, uh, and I can only apologise if you are offended. But maybe I should remind you that this is a piece of drama and these are about real people. And actually, the the events that we portray are real. So if you want to be, you know, it's fine to be offended. But what you can't say is that it's not real and that we shouldn't be tackling these issues. You know... The the gay brother is real. He's he he's part of the family. He has been shunned because of his sexuality. Now, I'm not saying that he should be shunned. We're just telling you what actually happened and how that feels and what that dynamic is and how it makes his brothers and sisters feel. And then there was also the religion thing. And one of the things that we came back time and time again was that Ompere portrayed... Uh, a character where it was a stereotype that Asian men hit their partners. And I couldn't, for the life of me, figure out how it was a stereotype. Because (laughs) a stereotype would only be such if it happens regularly. And to my mind, it hadn't happened regularly. So unless you had been in contact with somebody who was like that, that would be one of the ways that you might see it as a stereotype, or you're worried that other people might suddenly think that all Asian men hit their wives. Well, I mean, I I find that incredibly narrow-minded to think that the rest of the world thinks in that way. You know, just because I see, I watch a, a film where cowboys and Indians, I don't think that all white men go around shooting people all the time and Indians wear feathers on the head. I found that quite frustrating. And I can understand why people may be protective over culture and identity and anything that they perceive to be damaging. I didn't think we were. And one of the big debates on East Disease was, had the dad ever hit the mum before? Because people jump to the conclusion that he has done this serially and in that he is a wife beater. There is no evidence in the film of, of, of that. You know, we, we hear that he can lose his temper, but one of the debates we were having was whether, you know, how, how often has this happened? 
And has has the mum ever hit him? You know, we, we you know we we go through the ins and outs and the minutiae of the script in order to end up with a product that we think is a is a fair representation of those characters and obviously the way on played it i thought Ampari was brilliant because he was not a likable character yet at the end you kind of you just felt sorry for him you understood where he was coming from and you understood that it was because he was in pain and that he he just couldn't understand that that his good way of life didn't translate to these kids it 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 just it, they were incompatible you couldn't force them to live in that era because they were they were different they were born in a different country they were exposed to different things they were a different type of people and it was a and it it was heartbreaking to watch it it, it really really was and then you see him at the end of the film and it's just or at the end of the play and he's kind of He's accepted defeat. You know, obviously, you know, he was rather bullish in trying to get his way, um, but he kind of accepts defeat and then it kind it pours out, you know, that he's just trying to do what he feels is best for his family. And this is this is his internal struggle with him thinking, but if I don't get these kids' wives, you know, what kind of dad will I be? So he's been affected by the generation that went before him and the pressures that he's felt pushing down on him and then he's tried to push down on the next generation and then it's all blown up because nobody is happy with the with with what's going on and so we have to reset and we have to we have to make adjustments we have to make adjustments culturally socially uh, within the family to to make things work and accept people as human beings and who and accept them for whoever they are i mean the thing is the, the characters in it are multi-dimensional aren't they i mean you know the great thing about east is east is you can watch it time and time again and i've watched it over and over again many many times you know you see something different something new uh, within those characters uh, every time you you watch it and of course, the sequel to it, West is West, went a bit deeper as well, didn't it? I mean, that was much more serious in a way than East is East was. But of course, it was a very different film in many ways. Yeah. I mean, first thing to know about West is West was they didn't ask me to be in it. But apart from that, obviously, one of my best friends, Emil Marwa, was one of the leading actors in that. Um, and it didn't really fly. And it didn't fly because it didn't tackle the clash of the cultures head on straight from the start. And I felt like I ended up watching the entire film just waiting for the mum and the Auntie Annie to arrive in Pakistan. And that's kind of where the film started. And it was like, we're trying to make a sequel without two of the most important characters in the in the first film. And it, for me, that that was a kind of... I think that was a fundamental flaw from the very beginning because I think people expected to see those characters there quicker i mean it, it was aesthetically pleasing but i think yeah you're right i think it he just didn't really work did it going back to um east is east and then um one area we've not really talked about much is the whole area of uh the arranged marriage situation which of course um was was sort of turned into um it was very serious but it was turned into one of the hilarious bits of the uh, of the film um just remind us and tell us a little bit about um that scenario and uh, how it played out and how it played out maybe differently um, in the theatre production to the to the film. So there was uh, Tariq and Abdul were the two characters who were getting the arranged marriages and Salim was the next one in line. Oh, actually, after Munir. So Munir was the religious one and he was quite happy to have an arranged marriage. The eldest brother, Abdul, was open to it to keep the status quo because... I suppose he was the eldest, he was the most mature, he was the one that thought this is going to cause a lot of disruption. And he was the one that was saying, look, I'll have an arranged marriage if it means that you don't have to have one to Tarek. Tarek was the rebel. He was the one that was out enjoying all the clubs and the party scene. And, um, you know, we see those scenes in the clubs. And, you know, he's even changed his name when he goes to the clubs. Just even, He's clearly brown, but he's changed his name to sort of to a name that Tony or whatever it was. Like, like it makes a difference, but suddenly people just accept him because he's not called Tarek, he's called Tony. I mean, it is ridiculous that those kinds of things went on. But, um, yeah, they, they were the two brothers who were getting married. Salim was the next kind of... He was going to be 
he was going to be picked up next. Um, and that was going to be a big, big battle for the dad as well. And in fact, in the stage play, it is Salim that tries to talk to the dad on behalf of Tarek and the other kids. Um, and he gets beaten up. <laughs> that was a difficult scene. And I, I was disappointed it was cut from the film and it was reallocated so that Tarek takes him on directly almost. I think the character of Salim lost something because he wasn't there allowed to be that voice which he had been previously uh, as the the kind of the liberal spokesperson for the for the new generation who wanted something different so we lost that but you know the film still worked final question then chris um you're a prominent asian actor um who's known um throughout the uk for the parts that you played um but there aren't many of you are there still to this day 2020 we still don't have that many well-known Asian actors. We know there's loads of talent out there, um, but the ones that get through, the ones that people recognise, people see, there's a handful, isn't there? Um, What do you make of that? Look, I think um, there is still a problem with representation in British drama. There's no two ways about that. Um, You look at the demographics, the makeup of the country, generally underrepresented. Also, when it comes to leading actors, you know, who's going to lead your show? Idris Elba? You know, the, you know, Adrian Lester was quite prominent previously as well. And But there aren't that many kind of shows that the big networks make that have a, a black or Asian cent, central character, the lead. You know, it's it's still it's still dominated by writers, or I'm not I'm not sure why why things haven't evolved. Um, you know, the same's been true of, of like when they when they put you on magazine covers. You know, which magazines will go for which cover, and do they think it's going to affect the sales because they put a black or an Asian person as the as the central character? It still happens with with some of the award ceremonies as well. You know, are they are people underrepresented? You know, even you know, it's like you work in any office. You know, you can see what the makeup of the office is, and you know that's no different when you're working on TV and film. And yet, it, it's it's disappointing, and you know, a lot of my friends have have stopped acting. But I I think yeah, we we still have a a, a problem with representation and enough representation and it's about the types of parts that you're playing and I know from my experience and I've said this a million times I am Chris from Manchester (laughs) I I have well I obviously have a Christian name I'm called Christopher I am Roman Catholic but the only casting briefs that come through or historically came through for me were Vikram, Salim, Nazir, Tariq and it's almost like there is no perception of what real life is. You know, we 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 have to pigeonhole people, and and you know, it is it's just as frustrating for me as it is for anybody else. And things have changed more recently, and I think that you don't really specify on the briefs, or the you know, the name should not tell you necessarily what that person looks like. Um, and I suffered from that a lot of the time because there was there were parts that I was well I would always say that I was perfect for but there were I know that there were parts that I just wouldn't get because they could only see a white actor in that role and that was incredibly frustrating because I would never even get seen for the part so I wouldn't even be given the audition and I was saying come on guys at least let me show you what I can do because I think this this part in because they send you the script obviously and you read through it and you go in hold on surely you want me to play that part that's it might be smaller it might be bigger but that is more interesting and that's probably more me and I can probably give you something more interesting if you want me to do that but it just doesn't work that way and you know that can be frustrating and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but I think you know things are improving but we know we're not there yet it almost blows my mind that we that we still need to protest on such a huge scale about equality in 2020 you know it, it, this should be on the history channel this, you know this this whole thing it, it should have been done and dusted but we haven't moved on and we need to move on it's not about making one set of society less important it's about equaling up and it always has been about equaling up and equality and you know that moves that goes across all of the movements, you know, 
sort of, of across gay rights. Um, you know, in ITV, we have an, a network that's called the Embrace Network. And, you know, we're very, very forward thinking. It's important to a lot of people that are in minority groups. And I think that that, that, that is becoming a much more common position or a way of thinking now and that people actually do see it and recognize it and that can only be a good thing chris it's been great to talk to you thank you very much indeed for um talking to us about east is east uh, 21 lovely to talk to you ash cheers mate distinct nostalgia is home to some fascinating conversations with the names behind some iconic films of the 20th century And we've a special treasure trove of interviews and reunions around great British film. There's Brief Encounter. I was making my first film at the age of 19, and so was playing Beryl, the young girl serving the teas in the refreshment room. I'm the last surviving member of this, and I suppose I'm getting rather elderly. Plus, Brassed Off. We didn't know that brass band music was going to be that popular. It just became a real word of mouth, people's film. It stayed in the top ten in London for nearly three or four months, I think. And we eventually had to go up and ask them to stop showing it in Leeds because it was going to ruin the, uh, the video launch date. And Oliver. The phone went, and my mum shouted up saying, oh, you got the part of Oliver. And I remember being, because I was eight at the time, thinking, great, I'm going to have, like, six months off school. And that's all I thought. I didn't think anything else of it. Distinct Nostalgia. Celebrating great British movies. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or browse our existing programmes at distinctnostalgia.com. Distinct Nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.